We'll take our Bibles and open up with me to First Peter chapter 2 this morning. First Peter chapter 2, and bear with me, I think I'll make it through the sermon all right, but it'll be nice to have some vocal rest when I'm done. Got a little throat infection going on, but I think I'll make it through. First Peter chapter 2 this morning. As you're turning, think about this. What is the biggest decision you've ever made? Have you ever made a decision that has changed your life? Throughout life, we're faced with several decisions each and every day. Really, every hour we encounter decisions. What should you have for breakfast? Should you have coffee or tea? Should you hit the snooze button? What lane on the freeway should you take? Where should you fill up for gas? What should you do tonight? When should you go to sleep? So on. Just We're just broaded with decisions over and over again. Every so often we encounter a decision that, like a fork in the road, will forever alter our lives. They may not always be of life or death consequence, but there are some bigger decisions in life that have greater consequences. A simple example would be choosing to get a pet dog for the first time. If you grew up with a, a dog, it's not a big deal. You know what to expect. But if you didn't, and then you decide to get one later in life, that's a huge decision. When we were in college, my wife, Angel, and her sister, Anna, they decided to get a dog. They're living with their mom. They just they went on a whim, and they bought a dog, and they came home to their mom with a brand-new dog, a little short-haired or long-haired Dotson. They brought this puppy home unannounced to their mom, and that decision changed their life. The dog kept them up all night barking. She had an allergic reaction to shots. She was needy. She chewed on things. She couldn't be left alone for long. You know how it goes. And now, especially Anna, who cares for the dog, has developed a special you know, love for the dog. It just changes how she does things. It changes how she leaves the house. It changes how she goes on vacation. It changes how she lives. It's a relatively small decision, getting a dog, but it had some big consequences. It had changed their lives. Another big decision that comes maybe just two or three times in your life, the decision to change your career. That opportunity doesn't come often, but when it does, it presents an extremely difficult but important decision. We're talking not about a job change, a career change, and since you work most of your life, that's a a life changer, changing your career. I remember making this decision in my own life. I graduated with an engineering degree, and I was working engineering for a while, but then as I discerned the call to ministry, I knew I had a big decision to make, and it would just take me in one of two directions. And that was a life changer. Thankfully, by God's grace, for the better. But just thinking back, if I had decided otherwise, and it was only back in 2006, how differently our lives would look today. Just one simple decision. These are the type of life-changing decisions I'm talking about. Of course, the decision for a couple to have kids is another one. That will change your life forever. And there's no turning back from that one. Thankfully, you don't want to turn back, but nonetheless... Literally, every aspect or category of your life changes when you decide to have kids. The same goes for marriage, although I think the decision of marriage is greater than the decision to have kids. It's a more significant decision. Not really to, not really the decision to get married, but the decision of whom to marry, choosing the right or wrong person. Choosing a spouse, it's got to be up there as one of the the most life-changing decisions you'll make. You're literally intertwining your life with another person. So depending on who you pick, your your life is going to go this way or that way. It's just going to change your life. It's a decision that will change your life. Think back now with me. Think back to all the decisions 
the big decisions you've made in life? Have you made some good ones? Have you made some bad ones? Filled with gratitude, filled with regret? Let me tell you something. There's one decision that that puts all the decisions you've made in life to shame, makes them, by comparison, insignificant. There's one decision that makes all the other decisions you've made in life not matter that much. Maybe you've made every bad decision on the list, and you're filled with regret. You, you've just, you feel like you've, you've just gotten it wrong every single time. There's one decision that can, in a sense, change all that or make it not matter. I'm, of course, talking about the most important decision in the world. The most important decision you will ever make is the decision about Christ. What are you going to do with Christ? Will you accept him and his claims, or will you reject him? Will you believe or disbelieve? Commit or turn away? The figure of Christ and his claims, it confronts each and every person that lives with this ultimate fork in the road. And based on how you respond to him, your life and your eternity will, will change. It won't be the same forever. And everyone must choose. This is a decision that everyone is confronted with. You have to choose what you're going to do with, with Christ, with, with God. You say you don't want to make up your mind. Well, that's the same as rejection, to not make up your mind. It's the same as rejection. There's, there's literally no middle ground. You have to pick a side. And like I said, what you do with, with Jesus is the most important decision you'll ever make. And your eternity hangs in the balance. Eternal life or eternal death. Forgiveness or punishment. Justification or condemnation. Reconciliation or separation. What's it going to be? How are you going to decide? And even if you make every wrong decision in life, if you get this one right, it's all good. Our text in 1 Peter chapter 2 highlights this most essential of truths. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8 shows us this stark contrast between two groups of people, the believing and the unbelieving. This contrast, it's, it's founded upon one thing, their relation to Christ, what they did with Christ, how they chose, how they decided to, to relate to him. And their destinies become vastly different after that. Again, we'll see. It's all about this contrast. What they did, what you do with Christ. Peter begins this passage, verse 4, telling us about Jesus. We won't read it ahead of time. We'll see it as we get to it. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Jesus confronts every human being with a decision because he makes these radical, exclusive claims. And you either have to accept them or reject them. But he makes these just extremely radical claims. I mean, think about it. He claimed to be truly man, fully man. He also claimed to be truly God, God incarnate. And Christ claimed to be the Messiah, the, the long-awaited Savior. Those are some big claims. And you know, God, he piles on. He makes some claims of his own through Scripture. God claims that Jesus lived a perfect life. God claims that Jesus, although sinless, died on the cross. And God claims that on the cross, Jesus died to, to bear the wrath of sin, to pay the penalty for sin as a substitute for sinners like you and me. God claims that Jesus, after tasting death and paying for sins, conquered death and rose from the grave on the third day. And then now, God claims that if you turn from your sins 
and turn toward Christ in faith and acceptance and commitment, that you will receive forgiveness and eternal life, which he offers now as, as just a free gift. These are some claims. These are some claims that God makes. And they're, they're serious. They're not made lightly. They're not to be taken lightly. We come now to verse 4 in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter, he's going to make some more claims about who Jesus is. What's he like? Who is he? Look at verse 4. He says, And coming to him, Christ, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Who is Jesus? Well, first, he says he's a living stone. He's a living stone. God, God is described in Scripture sometimes as a rock. I mean, he's a rock to cling to. Christ here, though, he's not a rock. He's a stone. Picture a stone, a square, you know, cut, perfectly leveled, squared for building stone, like you know, one of the ancient pyramids, one of those massive stones just prepared. That's a picture. Ancient buildings, they were often made of stone, and these stones had to be slowly and painfully and carefully cut and quarried and, and, and transported to their destination. And so the picture here, it's one of those. It's a stone used for building. In fact, Peter, he's drawing off of several Old Testament prophecies that, that envision the Messiah coming as, as like a stone. In fact, look at verse 6 of 1 Peter 2. He quotes one of those passages. He says, For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He's quoting from Isaiah 28 here, and it's referring to Jesus. As Peter explicitly says, and as Christ himself identified, he's the stone. Jesus is that stone. He is that cornerstone. In ancient building, the, the cornerstone, it was the first stone and the most important stone you would, you would lay. If you're building a, a structure out of stone, it's, not, it's the first one. It's the most important one. Why? Because it determines all the lines of the building. Every other stone you would place would, would be in relation to you know, the angles of that first stone. If you got that one wrong, if you misplaced it, the entire structure is going to be misaligned. And when I was in middle school, I worked with my uncle for the summer doing tiling. And it, I learned a, f- a few things about tiling during that summer. If, if you were going to lay tile on, on a bathroom floor or the wall, you don't start in the middle. You don't start tiling in the middle and then work your way out. Why not? Because by the time you get to the wall or the, or the floor, there's no way you're going to be flush and level with the lines of the wall or the floor. It's just not going to happen. You start in the corner with that corner tile, and then you work your way out. It's the same with building a large stone structure. You start with that corner stone. And the picture here is Christ. That's him. He's that corner stone. He's the first stone. He's the most important stone. And he alone gives direction to the rest, and he alone sets God's building straight. He keeps it in line. Christ is the stone. He's the cornerstone. But there's more. He's not just any cornerstone. Back to verse 4. He's a living cornerstone. He's a living stone. When you think about it, that's quite a paradox because it's really one of the last things you would associate with being living. You know, stone, 
Stones don't live. Pretty sure when I took biology in high school, there wasn't a chapter in the book on stones. They're just, they're just they're not living. But Christ, he's, he's called here a living stone, not because he was once alive, because he's, he's still alive. He's resurrected. Christ is living. Every time you hear about him in scripture, what is he? He's not bread. He's living bread. He's not water. He's living water. He's the living God. Here, he's the living stone. He's living. He's resurrected. The first fruits from the dead. He possesses new life. And as such, he's able to, to give life to those who come to him, who align themselves next to him, being that cornerstone. Look at verse 4 again. Not everyone, though, aligns themselves with Jesus. Some people don't. Verse 4. Coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men. Stop there. Christ came as the Messiah. He came as the stone, long-awaited, prophesied. But he was rejected. He came and was met with rejection, first by his own people. The Jews rejected him. They turned on him. They're the ones who, at the end, they're the ones shouting, crucify him, and crucify him. But then, even since then, in the ages since, he's continued to be rejected by all people, men, women, Jew, Gentile. It continued to be rejected. People look upon him, they evaluate his claims, and they reject. But look at the contrast here in verse 4. Like I said, it's about this contrast Here Jesus is rejected by men, which, that's according to plan, by the way. That's according to God's plan. The Messiah had to come. He had to be rejected. He had to be cut off and killed to to make atonement. But although he was rejected by men, he's what? He's choice and precious in the sight of God. Rejected by men, chosen by God. Cast aside by men made the cornerstone by God. Detestable to men, but but precious to God. Do you see the contrast? And the question is, where do you line up here? Who is Jesus? Whose estimation of Christ are you going to accept? Here, he is the living stone, the Messiah who lives, who who was rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. So, So who are you? Whose estimation of Christ are you going to accept? These are the claims. How are you going to deal with them? Again, a decision must be made. There's no middle ground here. It's either accept or reject. And it will impact the rest of your life. It will impact your eternity. In the rest of this passage, Peter goes on to delineate these two responses people can make to Christ and and their results. What happens as a consequence? How do you change? How does your destiny change? Based on that response, that's what he's going to talk about. He's going to share these responses and their outcomes. And so what are they? What are these two responses people can make to Christ? And then what are the results? What happens afterward? For the rest of our time this morning, we're going to find out. This passage doesn't lend itself to you know, a nice and neat three-point outline. That's not where we're going to go with it. I said before, it's all about this contrast between these two groups, the believing, the unbelieving, there are two responses, and then the results. That's what we want to do. We want to focus on that track. And so this morning, I simply want you to see clearly these two responses to Jesus and the results. 
the two responses to Jesus and their results. What you do with Jesus, it's the most important decision of your life. And so we need to see that. We need to see that. We need to see why. And we're going to. The two responses to Jesus and their results, and probably for the sake of time and, and for the sake of my voice, today we're only going to cover the first one, the first response. We'll come back next week. We'll handle the second response to him. So this morning, only really the first one, the first response to Jesus, and that is belief and worship. That's number one, the first response, belief and worship. Look at verse 6. The first response to Christ begins with belief. Verse 6. He says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. Let me stop there. What's the first response? What's the right response to Jesus? It starts with belief. Belief. You know the verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And verse 6 here, Peter, he's referencing Isaiah 28.16 which is one of those, like I said, three Old Testament prophecies that looks forward and pictures the Messiah as a stone. Paul also refers to this prophecy in Romans 10. You can turn there with me if you want. Romans chapter 10. I'll show you this, where he makes the same analogy, and he actually quotes the same verse from Isaiah 26, Romans Romans chapter 10. Verse 9. You may have heard this verse as well. Romans 10, 9. He says, That if you, what, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? What happens? You'll be saved. But verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For, verse 11, the scripture says, whoever believes in him, will not be disappointed. That's the same verse. That's in 1 Peter, Isaiah 28:16. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So, so what's that first right response? It's belief. It's the key that unlocks eternal life. It's to believe in Jesus. To believe, though, it doesn't mean to know about Jesus. That's not what it means to believe in him. It's not about knowing about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. Do you catch the difference? You know, I know I know a lot about George Washington, but I don't know George Washington. Make sense? There's a relational aspect to believing in Jesus that comes when you when you see him in the word and you embrace him, you enter a relationship. There's a commitment that comes when you believe in him. It's where you you truly know him, you believe in him, you trust him, you follow him, you live for him. You have a, a living relationship with him. So, so do you have this? Do you have this belief, this trust in Jesus and a life that backs it up? That's the first part, to the right response to him. It's to believe. You must believe to be saved. You must accept his claims 
and embrace him in faith to be saved. There's a second part, though, to the right response, this first response to Jesus. First, you need to believe. Secondly, you need to worship. That's the second part to this first response to him. You need to respond to him in worship as well. Look at verse 4 of 1 Peter 2. Just that first part, it says, And coming to him as to a living stone. Coming to him as to a living stone. He's talking to believers here, and he's saying, Believers, you, you're coming to him, Christ, as to a living stone. The key here, it's tied up in that phrase, coming to him. Coming to him. In the Greek, it's proserkomai, and it's a term of worship. It's talking about people drawing near to God in worship. This is a worship term. It's a drawing near to the throne to worship. And so that's something you need to do as well. You need to respond to Christ, not, not just with belief, but also with a worship. And notice, it says, come to him and worship. You need to go to Jesus to worship. Don't, don't go to the temple. Don't go to religion. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Rome. Don't go to the Pope. Don't go to a priest. Don't go to a building. Don't go to a person. You go to Jesus to worship and nothing else. You need to draw near to him in worship. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he, Christ, Christ is able also to save forever who? Those who draw near to God through him. Same word. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. It's about worship. And so that's our first right response to Christ. It's belief. It's worship. If this response is yours, you're saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin. Saved from death, from wrath, from hell, from judgment, from condemnation. But you're not only saved. So that, that's not a complete term. You're saved. Because there's more that happens to you. You're not just saved from these things. There are other results when you have that right response. And what are these? I said before, we wanted to look at these two responses to Christ. And then the results. So that's our first re- response to him. Belief and worship. So, so what are these results then? Okay, if you do that, then what? What, what happens next? We learn from Scripture, you know, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're reconciled to God. But Peter now, he's going to highlight five other results that come when you have this right response. Five additional results in salvation. And we're going to look at these now. Five results that come when you rightly respond to Christ. There's two responses. The first is to believe and to worship. And then uh, under that, we have these five results. So, so what are these? Well, back to verse 4. First one is this. He says, you are a living stone. That's the first result. You are, you become a living stone. Verse 4, he's speaking to believers. He's saying, you're coming to Christ. That's to a living stone. You're approaching Jesus in belief and worship. And then verse 5, what? He says, you also, believers, you now, as living stones, are being built up. He's saying, You now are living stones. You approach Christ as a living stone, but then you also are living stones. Christ is a cornerstone. He's the living stone, but he's not meant to be alone. He's not meant to be the only stone. You're part of the building as well. 
for you to be a living stone, it's not a naturally occurring phenomenon. You ever go hiking and, and you hear a stone talk to you? Maybe you see a stone just get up and move across the road. Or you ever see someone you know, skipping stones on a lake and you find yourself worried that they're going to drown? Never. The stones are dead. They don't have life. And it's impossible to give them life. But that's the analogy here. You see, because you, a sinner, you're dead too. You're just as dead. Sinners are just as spiritually lifeless before God. And it's impossible for you to ever come alive. You're dead. You're as dead as a stone. But God can do the impossible. He can make stones come to life. Can he not? And that's what he does with you. Similarly, he can raise us from a spiritual death brought about by our sins, and he can give us a new life. And that's what he does. Through Christ, through the living stone, he brings life to others, making them living stones as well. And we receive a life. A life that's it's so powerful, it can make a stone come to life. That's how powerful this new life is. And at salvation, through the new birth, Jesus imparts this new life to you. It's like he breathes it to you and you come alive. Listen to this, John 6.40. Christ is talking. He says, This is the will of my Father that everyone who, who beholds the Son and believes in him, that's the response, right? Everyone who believes in him will, will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. It's just the first result. You come alive. You come alive. You're a living stone. We're stones, once dead, now alive. And it's just one of the many magnificent results that comes about when you put your faith in Christ. And what, what a privilege. What a, what a blessing. Eternal life. It's totally undeserved, but it's brought about by God's free gift of his son. It's the first result that Peter mentions. When you place your faith in him, you, you come alive. God brings you to life. He makes you first a living stone. But these stones, though, they're, they're not pictured as being scattered about, separated, detached from one another. That's not how it works. They're meant to come together. These stones are building blocks meant to come together in a house. And this leads us to the second result that comes when you put your faith in Christ. Number two, you are a spiritual house. Straight from verse 5. You are a spiritual house. Look at verse 5 again. He's talking to you. He says, you also now, you as living stones are what? You're, you're being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house. Contrary to some translations, this is not a command. It's a statement of fact. He's saying you are being built up as a spiritual house. God is the builder. You are the stones. God's house is the building. But what exactly does this mean, though? You're being built into a spiritual house. What does that really mean? Well, first, this is a corporate reality. This is a corporate reality, meaning it's for all of us. The you in verse 5, it's in the plural. He's speaking to all believers here. He's saying that collectively you now comprise a spiritual house. The point is, being a Christian, it's not a solo sport. The Bible knows nothing of a Christian just detached from the church, detached from the body, detached from the spiritual building. There's no category for a lone ranger Christian in the Bible. If you ever see someone who calls themselves a Christian but 
They are detached from the body, from a local church, from other believers. There's something wrong with them. They're usually display either great spiritual immaturity or great spiritual pride, one or the other. But God, at salvation, he, he makes you alive as a living stone, and then he puts you together. It's like Legos. I mean, Legos are not meant to be played with individually, like one by one. They're meant to be put together and built into something. And so are living stones. They're meant to come together. And God's intention is to knit believers together into one unit, one body, one building, and each living stone is needed. It's not complete without the living stones. So what does this mean? We're talking about a corporate reality. This is for the church as a whole. But what's all this talk about God building a house? I mean, what's that about? Does God need a house? Does God live in a house? What's he saying? Well, a house is a dwelling place. God's house is God's dwelling place. That's that's like a temple. In the Old Testament, Israel had the temple in Jerusalem where God was depicted as dwelling. He dwelt in his house, so to speak. But even then, even Solomon, he he knew better. Solomon built that temple, but he knew. Just listen, 1 Kings 8.27. After he built it and he was dedicating it, he confessed. He said, will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven... And the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Solomon knew God doesn't live in a house. God does not live in a building. He knew better. The building is not the important thing. What's the important thing? It's the people. God is not concerned about building a physical house with stones. God is concerned about building a spiritual house with living stones. That's his building project. In verse 5, it says, You, you are being built up into a spiritual house. Spiritual. It's a spiritual reality. And don't misunderstand. Spiritual does not mean immaterial. Some people get that way wrong. Like thinking spiritual means immaterial. That's not always the case. Spiritual here means belonging to the realm of the Holy Spirit. God is, through the Spirit, making a place for His Spirit to dwell out of living stones who have been brought to life by the Spirit. It's, it's a spiritual reality. His dwelling place, it's not a building, it's its people. A spiritual people. And that's why, you know, remember Revelation 22? The picture of heaven? There's no temple in heaven. Why not? Because, because God's the temple. We're the temple. We're just all there. God and the Lamb are its temple. Or consider this, Ephesians 2. Just listen along. You don't have to turn there. Listen along to Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Paul makes a very similar point. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So he's talking to Gentiles. He's like, you're no longer separate. You're together in the one new man, God's house. You're together. You're one in God's house. Verse 20. He says, having been built... On the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 
It's the same point, if you, if you caught it, if you're following along. God, what's he doing with the church? What is this mystery now revealed? He's taking people, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, male, female, doesn't matter. He's bringing them into one building, one body in Christ to be, he says, into a dwelling of God. God's making his house, and it's you. God's making his house. It's a spiritual house. It's built out of his people as living stones. And in this house, with his people, God's going to dwell forever. That's amazing to think about. God's going to dwell in this house, which is you, forever. And he's building that now. It's an amazing thing. You get to be a part of this forever. And again, what a privilege, what a blessing bestowed on you by God's choosing of you and by your right response. Some people get so caught up with the buildings. The church, you know this, church is not a building. Perhaps the greatest religious building on the planet is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It has the largest interior of any church. It took 120 years to build. It's massive. It's supposedly built on the grave of the Apostle Peter, whose letter we're studying. And so it's treated by Catholics to be one of the holiest places in the world for them. And I've been there. It is a magnificent building. It is a marvel. But Catholics, they flock there, and they're seeking some special favor from God simply by visiting this, this holy ground, this holy building. You know, they touch the marble walls. They pass through the bronze doors. They, they think this is where God lives. This is, we're in God's presence now. I'm holier now because I'm here. To them, the structure is it's God's house. That's, that's actually God's house. But, but if only Peter himself could see what had been done in his name, he would turn over in his grave. That's not the church. That's not what the church should be about. Don't get me wrong. Architecture is fine. But the church is not a building. The church is a people. It's God's people. It's you. That's the church. You're the church. You're God's spiritual house. Realize what a privilege and encouragement this is. Put yourself in the shoes of these first century Christians that Peter is writing to, especially. Put yourself in their shoes. They had no temple to go to. They had been kicked out of the Judaism. They were kicked out of the pagan cults. They had no temple to go to, no religious building to associate with. They were outcasts from all those places. They had no place to meet. They didn't have a building. But here comes this word from God through Peter saying, you don't need a temple. But why not? You're the temple. You're God's temple now. You don't need one of these fancy buildings. You don't need to go anywhere. God, God's with you. He's always present with you. You're his church now. And so take encouragement. Take, take joy in this. And that, that's the same for us today. That hasn't changed 2,000 years later. We are still that building that we meet here. It's just a place to meet. Yeah, air conditioning, heating, it's nice. But it's not the church. We have the joy and the encouragement of knowing that, that God is just with his people. This is now this is the second result of rightly responding to Jesus. When you come to Christ in faith, he makes you alive. He makes you into a living stone. Then secondly now, he, he builds you together. He forms you and builds you into 
Secondly, a spiritual house. You are a spiritual house. Third now, let's move on. Our third result of coming to him in belief and worship. Thirdly, you are a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. Verse 5, he says, You also, as living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, or, or to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is two things. First, you're being built up as a spiritual house. You're being built up as a spiritual house. Secondly, you're being built up as a holy priesthood. He's making really two parallel points. Peter, he's, he's mixing metaphors here on purpose. But first, he's, he's saying you're a spiritual house. Second metaphor, you're a priesthood. You're a holy priesthood. What does that mean, though? What's that all about? Well, he's again, he's drawing off of Old Testament imagery and understanding of the priesthood. In the Old Testament, God established this priesthood system where a few men, a select group of men, the Levites, would serve as priests. And priests, they were, they were go-betweens. That's all it was. They're go-betweens. They stood between God and the people. They're, they're in between. They mediate on behalf of the people. They sacrifice on behalf of the people. They pray on behalf of the people. They're the go-betweens. They're your middleman. Back then, your average Joe could not draw near to God in worship. You didn't have access. You had to, by God's design, you did this on purpose for a reason. You had to go through a priest. You needed a mediator, someone to go before you. But even the priests didn't have a total access to God in worship. Even they were kept away. You remember in the temple, there's a special room. Remember? Called the Holy of Holies. It's that inner chamber. That's where God put his special presence, so to speak. On purpose, he put it there. But nobody could go in there. The room was separated by a veil from the rest of the temple. You can't, you can't go in. Only one person once a year, the high priest, could go in there to offer atonement or make atonement. But even the, the rest of the priests had to worship outside God's presence. And then the people couldn't even go inside the temple. The rest of the people were just outside the whole thing. And the picture, it's one of just one word. Separation. That's what it was. It's all about separation. God's holy. You're not. Separation. Now, that's how worship was in the Old Testament. Access to God was limited, temporary, partial. That's what it was. Limited, temporary, partial. But this changed with Jesus. Jesus came, remember, as the perfect high priest. He was the perfect priest. He offered the perfect sacrifice himself. He lives forever. He doesn't need a replacement. He doesn't need a changing of the guards. He has no sins of his own to get in the way. He can perfectly intercede for others forever. He's just the perfect priest. He's the perfect priest. That's the whole point of, of Hebrews, or one of them. And when Christ came, also he fulfilled the law, removing the need for an elite class, and a special group of men to be priests. He, he removed that, that need. Jesus opened the way to God for his people directly. Remember what happened when Christ was crucified in the book of Matthew? He dies on the cross. And then what happens right after? For one, remember that veil? It tore in two. Not from bottom to top. From top to bottom. Signifying God was removing the veil. 
saying access, it's open, it's free. It's that you now have direct access through what just happened mile away on the cross. Now everyone who comes to him has full, complete, direct access to the Holy of Holies, God himself. It's open. All through what Christ accomplished on the cross. Now everyone through Christ can access God. It's not limited anymore. It's unlimited. It's not temporary. It's permanent. It's not partial. It's full. And and God did one more thing. He, He took one more step. As if this wasn't enough, he did one more thing. He then made everyone a priest. Everyone's a priest now. There's no more special group of priests. He made everyone who believes in him, remember this is a result, everyone who believes in him, they're all priests. Everyone's a priest now. It's called the priesthood of all believers. And this is exactly what Peter's talking about. There's no more special class of people with this privileged access to God. That's gone. Every true believer in Christ is like a priest with that special access. Everybody. Even the least brand new believer. And I have to say, again, it's not like today's poke holes and Catholicism day, but it just happens to fit, you know. This is another area they've, they've really gotten wrong. What you see today in the Catholic Church is nothing like Christianity when Peter was writing, even hundreds of years after that. There were no priests. Show me a priest in the New Testament. Show me a pope. The Catholic system was built up over many years. They misunderstood the term presbyter. After Christ himself, he abolished having a special class of priests. What they did was, over time, slowly rebuilt the system. And this was not driven by scripture. This was driven by tradition. It just built up one year after the next after the next. They essentially recreated the Old Testament priesthood for New Testament times, which totally flies in the face of the priesthood of all believers and the high priesthood of Christ. It just it doesn't work from scripture. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's it. What do I need a priest for anymore? The whole point is I don't need a priest anymore. I don't need a guy in a box to confess my sins to. I confess my sins directly to God through Christ. I don't need some guy to pray for me. I pray to God directly through Christ. I don't need some guy to take the sacraments of communion on my behalf. I take them directly before God through Christ. And and so do you. So does every single true believer in Christ. Everyone now can, through Christ, draw near to God's throne with confidence. And this is the blessing and the privilege of the new priesthood that we're a part of. He's not done, though. Look in verse 5. What do priests do? What do priests do? Priests primarily offer sacrifices. That's their main job, to offer sacrifices. And the new priesthood is no different. Verse 5. God is, through Christ, building us up into a holy priesthood. What? To do what? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, We sacrifice. You're a priest now. You better sacrifice. But what do you sacrifice? Well, no longer do you or should you bring animal sacrifices to him because Christ, he gave that perfect once-for-all sacrifice of himself. We don't need any more covering for sin. It's finished. You don't need to sacrifice for your sins. 
So then what? What do you bring? He wants spiritual sacrifices. What are these? Well, for these sacrifices to be spiritual doesn't mean immaterial. It means related to the spirit. Anything done as service to God in the spirit is a spiritual sacrifice. Romans 12, listen to this. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do you want a sacrifice? you want to honor God? you want to bring a sacrifice before him? Then offer up your entire lives, even your bodies, in a holiness and a purity. That's a spiritual sacrifice. Or turn to this one, just a few pages to the left, Hebrews 13. You know, we're close enough that I can just show it to you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Hebrews 13:15. It says, through him, talking about Christ, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of what? Of animals? Blood? Now, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And verse 16, do, do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. It's, it's anything, anything done in the spirit. Worshiping, praising, doing good, even giving your money. These can be spiritual sacrifices. Don't miss a key point, though. There's a key point. In all this, God wants your heart. These sacrifices must come from a heart of genuine worship. And just by way of example, he mentions giving here. You can come to church. You can give all the money you want, thousands, tens, Hundreds of thousands of dollars. If your heart is not in the right place, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you want to be seen by men, you want to be esteemed, you want to look rich, you feel guilty. If you're doing it for any of the wrong reasons, meaningless. It's, it's not a spiritual sacrifice. God does not care. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And he wants your worship. You can express that through giving, but if your heart's not in the right place, it's no sacrifice doesn't care. Your sacrifices are only made acceptable to God when done through Christ. Isn't that what verse 5 says? Look at the end of verse 5. Offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Offer up your praise, your thanksgiving, out of the abundance of your heart, but through Christ, what he's done, what he's accomplished. Then you will have spiritual sacrifices to give. So consider this third result to rightly responding to Jesus. He first, he makes you alive as a living stone. Secondly, he forms you together into a spiritual house. A third now, he also makes you a priesthood, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to him. We got a couple more. They're short, so we'll be brief with these last two results. Number four, you're not disappointed. That fourth result to coming to him in belief and worship, you are not disappointed. Look at verse 6. It says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The fourth result of trusting Christ, you will never be disappointed. Literally, it says you'll never be put to shame. 
You will not suffer the disgrace of having the one you trust in fail you. And to the contrary, when everything else fails in life, and guess what? It will. People, they will fail you. Relationships, your job, money, everything's going to fail you. When everything does fail you, there will be one thing that doesn't fail you. The rock, the stone, Christ, the living stone, he will remain unshaken, dependable, and you won't be disappointed. Those that trust Christ will be like builders who do not suffer the shame of seeing their building fall to ruin. In 2009, the Lotus Riverside Building Complex was almost done in Shanghai. It's in China. It was built right next to a river. They almost had finished. One morning, though, the workers pulled up to the construction site only to find one of the many buildings toppled over. It didn't disintegrate. The building was intact. It had just literally fallen over, intact. See, the building, and it's about a 15-story building, too. It's pretty big. The building itself was great. Great building. The underground parking garage, not so great. You see, the builders, they did not take care to properly extend the foundation underground. And when the rains came, heavy rains, it washed away too much dirt around the foundation, leaving just a a top-heavy building and just toppled right over, just fell over. And this, of course, this was a huge embarrassment to the Chinese building company, too, even to China itself. Shame. They suffered shame. Their, Their building failed. But this type of shame, this failure, the point is, this disappointment, never going to be yours. Never yours. If you trust in Christ, God's chosen and precious one, never going to be put to shame. Those, however, who, who trust in something else to save them, if you trust in something else, you will be put to shame. On that last day, when what you trust in does fail you. Number four, you're not disappointed. Let's finish up now. Number five, you are honored. Last result, real quick, you are honored. It's from the beginning of verse seven. He says, this precious value then is for you who believe. This precious value is for you who believe. The ESV and ASB, I think, get this one right. They capture the sense. This precious value or this honor, as the ESV puts it, this honor is for you who believe. And that's the sense here. Instead of receiving shame when Christ fails, you receive honor when Christ shines through. In Romans 2.10, says you, you receive glory and honor and peace in Christ. That's what you get. And by nature of your union with Christ, you share in his honor. He gives you his honored position while those that reject him receive Not honor, but disgrace and shame. So there we have it. Two responses to Christ and their results. Today we've just covered that first response. We'll get the next one next week. But this first response, the right response to Christ, is what? Belief and worship. It's the right response. And if you do, you get these results. You're a living stone. You're a spiritual house. You're a holy priesthood. You're not disappointed. And you are honored. And all these blessings, all these blessings and more await those who trust him. Although today we've only focused on this positive side of things, you still have to decide. We began with this decision time. It's still decision time. 
You know, Christ is the most important decision you'll ever be confronted with. And God is sovereign over all decisions. We know that. But he still holds us responsible and accountable for the choices we make. So, so you have to choose, and you have to choose carefully. So consider Christ this morning. And for those of you who have not considered him, you know, though we did not cover the results for those who reject, just consider these positive results for those who accept. What have we covered? A new life. Eternal life. Life with God. Dwelling with God. Being his people. Being knit together with others who believe. You're not disappointed. You're honored. And elsewhere in scripture we learn you're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're freed. You're reconciled. You're saved. It's not wrong to want these things. You should want these things. But realize you only can access them through Christ. Through rightly responding to him in belief and worship. So to choose Christ. If you have not, do it today. You may not get another day to decide. For those here who have chosen Christ, praise God for that. Thank him for first choosing you. And then don't get off track. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he expresses fear that the Corinthians, they were being distracted from what? They are being distracted from the simplicity and purity of, of devotion to Christ. They had made their choice. They accepted. But they're starting to get distracted. Let me just end by reminding you, don't get distracted from Christ. You, you've chosen him. Thank God for that. But stay devoted to him. Don't, don't get led astray. You've turned to him in faith, but, but keep doing it. Faith is not a one-time deal. It's, it's not a set it and forget it type of action. You need to continually go to him in faith and trust in worship, all day, every day. Don't be distracted. Draw nearer to him in worship as you grow holier and holier. And these results we've studied, they're ours, and we can, we can be thankful for them, but don't let them get you distracted from Christ himself. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word from your scripture. We, we look to Christ the author and perfecter of our faith. And, and we thank you for choosing us, that we might choose him in return and, and be saved by him. We look to Christ, we reaffirm our faith in him, and we follow him, Lord. Thank you for giving us your son, the great high priest, to make atonement for our sins. And I just pray for anyone who, who hasn't chosen him, who has not come to Christ in a sincere, genuine trust and commitment with repentance, bearing the fruit of that. May they make that decision today. Either to accept or reject. I can't control anyone's decision, Lord. I just pray that they would choose, choose carefully and live accordingly. But stop riding the fence. Christ presents all of us with the claim and with the decision. But may we choose him and live. He is a, a good master. He's a good one to follow. So we choose him. Thank you for, for him and for all that we have in him. In your name we pray. Amen.